David Hay, it's time to unblock me on Twitter. <laughs> it was a long time ago. We've all grown. And you couldn't back it with Klitschko because you said you had a bad toe. And if you don't want to take that banter, don't say stupid stuff like that after the fight. Don't wear a t-shirt with severed heads and then back out a big toe and you've been boxed around for 12 rounds. Okay? <laughs> Okay, so we are back again. Pod number two of Black History Month. Education. I'm the English and Sociology graduate and Northumbria alumnus Dan Chirwa, and I'm joined by writer and an alumnus of UFC Film School, Alana Dunbar, graduate of Marketing and Management, Dom Harriet Thompson, alumnus of Newcastle, Nate Sterling, Master of Multidisciplinary Design Innovation, and also, finally, our host for the day, Angelo Irving, alumnus of both Hull and Sheffield and Master of English Literature and Professor of Twitter Corn. <laughs> <laughs> um, I hope I, did, I, did I get everyone's titles there? Dom's upset because you didn't say honours, but it's fine. We'll, we'll, get, we'll, we'll move past it. Summa cum laude. I'm, I'm not bothered about the honours. I'm just bothered about the classification. Don't forget that bit. First. There we go. First class brother. So guys, Angelo, as a teacher and a tutor and a professor and someone with a lot of experience in the educational um, sphere, is going to basically lead us through today. Um, We'll all sort of chip in and have our own segments as well, but it's basically his show. So I'll hand over to you there, Angelo. So our first segment is called Seeing Black. And my question to all of you is... Where did you see black people throughout your educational journey? And I've added an addendum question. Is it just Martin Luther King? I asked that question because two years ago when I was doing my master's, I did a uh, a video project with the ACS and I asked them what they learned about black history. And every single one of the 35 respondents said Martin Luther King. I'm going to ask Alana first, because obviously she had the most different education, being educated in uh, the States. Where did you see black people throughout your educational journey? Uh, didn't, <laughs> is the short answer, um, and the truest answer. And to be honest, when it comes to seeing black people in education, I probably had the same experience as you guys, where, yeah, it was pretty much just Martin Luther King, which we would study around Martin Luther King Day learned about Rosa Parks, and that was pretty much it. We would touch a skosh on slavery when we got to that part of our history. Um, But to be honest, I largely had to do any sort of black history education myself once I left high school, and after college even. Okay. Nate, I know when I kind of put this in the the deck that you were upset about the is it just Martin Luther King, so I'm going to ask you, what was... What black people were you learning about uh, during your educational journey? Yeah, I think it wasn't so upset. I think I just, it triggered me because it was so accurate. You know, I studied history up until I was 18. And it's mad how much I know about South Africa and the Boers and Russia and the Crimea. But how little I left at 18 years old knowing anything about British history and the role black people have played within it um, versus studying the American Civil Rights Movement. And obviously it's a huge movement, very important that we do learn about this, but not at the absence of, of kind of British history. So yeah, just uh, trigger me a little bit. But to answer your question, textbooks are in classmates. Um, certainly never the teachers. 
you know, it was in textbooks, on film, on screen, rarely, with them being depicted in quite, you know, obvious roles. What kind of historical figures did you learn about? The Egyptians, which I always find hilarious because they're always framed as white people. Um, how are you going <laughs> to live where they are? You know, just, I'm a, as I say, I love science. It's not logical. So, yeah, Egyptians, um, where obviously you kind of learn a little bit about slavery. Um, India and the caste system as well, and how kind of um, colour played a role in that. But apart from apart from that, not much. I only knew of the Windrush generation because my grandma was part of it. Dom, what about you? Because um, obviously we've had some great conversations over the last year or so, and you've got this rich family history, so I'm sure that in your own house you were learning about it but what about when it came to education what were you what were you getting very much the same as alana same as nate not a lot if anything to the point that <laughs> i remember being in history in either year eight or nine and i tried to import a little bit of my own blackness into one of the pieces of work that we did because we had so little uh, we had to write a biography about a notable figure in history and 13-year-old Dom obviously chose Tupac. Um, so I obviously obviously wasn't getting enough um, of what I needed in school to be going for Tupac to do that. Um, but no, I think for me, it was the, the majority of the, le- of the learning and the reading that I've done on black history has been within the last 10 years. I'd go as far as saying I did learn quite a lot growing up, but it was always anecdotal. Um I'd be sat at the dinner table and my grandma would be telling me about Nanny and the Maroons and my grandma would just out of nowhere would be driving somewhere in the car and she'd say, you realise that the traffic light was invented by a black man? And it was little tiny little things like that, which to me didn't really mean much at the time, but obviously it stuck and it was something that I'd probably go and tell my friends in the playground the next week and they're like, what are you lying for? <laughs> they don't have traffic lights in Africa. How's a black person going to go and um, how's a black person going to create that? Um, so it was it was limited, massively limited, just like everything else in my childhood. Um, I got the black influence and I got the knowledge about black things from my family. That kind of stuff wasn't broached in school. And Dan, does that ring true for you as well? Yeah, so, I mean, me and Dom went to the same school. Um, and it was, yeah, we, we got roots. So once a year, we just put the roots <laughs> video on for four episodes. <laughs> And that that's pretty much it. But um it's interesting, like I, I mentioned at the beginning, I was a an English undergrad and once I got into my third year, other canons was one of the modules and then that's when we started to read like African literature. So we you know, we'd read things like the bluest eye, uh Chino Achebe, things fall apart and you're reading I'm I was I remember thinking if people could read these stories, like like fundamentally African stories, uh which I mean a story is a story, so it doesn't really matter where it's about. If if they taught that in schools, you just inflame a desire to go out and seek alternative views of Africa and of and blackness. And I think that would really sort of help that learning process because it's never triggered when people are young. Most people never get to that point. You can't count on people doing English degrees to get to 20 years old before they reach that. Um, we had Olada Equiano, and I don't know if you read it, Gustavus Vassa, and his tales about being a slave and, and sort of buying his way out of slavery. So, yeah, for, so for me, I, it was real sort of famine, famine, famine. And then when I got to sort of 
my own directed learning in university it was it was it was a feast for me so you know I, I, I feel grateful that I managed to have that experience but it's it's kind of heartbreaking that that's not available to more people I think my frustration comes so in terms of my educational journey um, I learned more in primary school I learned more about the Romans than I did about any black person you know we would do a Roman day where you know you get a bed sheet and try and find one that yet you know your little brother hadn't wet the bed on and kind of run around with some leaves in your head but we never did anything about anybody black secondary school I was really lucky that I had a science teacher um, called Dr. Addo um, who was Ghanaian who she she always used to say I treat you like my own son and she she clearly did because she put me in detention all the time but what I love is that she was consistent with it and and I look back at it now and I go do you know what this was somebody that actually had my back and I really respected that history we just did Tudors and Stuarts uh we did World War Two every every year uh we did a lot of World War One and I remember that I did it into um, AS level, and then I dropped it at the end of AS level for for other for reasons. But one of the, my frustrations is that you know you know the saying it's the winners that write history, and the problem is is that we see black and white as winners and losers because it feels like a lot of white people have written black people out of history because I think a lot of the time people are like, well, more should be done in history and I kind of go well no more should be done in all subjects so for example the father of modern gynecology a guy called James Marion Sims he is his techniques are still used today but his research was conducted on enslaved black women now we will never learn about those women but the the techniques that he uh and I say this with the biggest inverted commas perfected came uh, on black women that he refused to use anesthesia on so i don't know maybe i'm drawing a link that shouldn't be drawn but is it any surprise then that the in the in, in the west that the mortality rates for black women are so high going into my undergrad didn't look at any black literature um but when i did my masters i made a specific choice to choose modules that gave me the opportunity to look at black literature so there was a module called new african literatures which is hilarious in itself because how can you look at the the literature from in, for an entire continent and we did talk about that and just said that you know you know we split europe down like there was two modules about i think german literature two se- separate ones and a number of different ones about different time periods in england but just one for new african literatures but it was absolutely great for me just seeing the the breadth and depth of of literature um but again i had to go up to master's level to to do that and then obviously i've i've been somebody that is black in education so i have been the person that that children children see yeah i think it's you mentioned the link to kind of um the founding father of gynecology and the history there it's kind of one of the points through learning about World War One and World War Two, there is ample opportunity to learn about the contribution of non-white people. Um, you can think about the contributions India made. You can think of the contributions the Caribbean made. You can think of, you know, Irish contingent. There's there's so many elements to history. It's not that it doesn't exist, right? It's that we're just not speaking of it in the same way. 
Yeah, it's it's a good point that you just made there, Nate, because this reminds me of something that I saw last week. So a friend of mine and Dan's um, back in Huddersfield, he's got a young boy, I think he's eight or nine. They were doing a little bit in class around Black History Month. And in fact, no, it wasn't about Black History Month, I tell a lie. It was about the war and the child who's of mixed heritage, half Jamaican. Um, he asked his teacher, did any black people, did any Jamaican people fight in the war? Um, to which his teacher replied, no. Jamaicans were too poor to fight in the war and obviously there's so much wrong with that but there's two things that I really look at within that statement one is like you said Angela and we discussed this in the group chat that is a perfect learning opportunity that's wasted there by the teacher and I don't know let's find out together but then secondly I look at that teacher and I say she's been failed because if she actually thinks that's the real answer then that's a failing of the English um, English education system itself that she doesn't know and then it's just perpetuating these lies that the victor has portrayed against black people because it doesn't fit the narrative that needs to be that needs to spread the word that the english empire was amazing that britain was amazing that britain and white people won these wars yeah i mean i think in that instance it like you've got to put the onus of the responsibility there on the individual on that teacher like i think it's i think it's you're letting her off the hook or whomever it was off the hook to say that because I mean she's had to you've had to go for a year's training to become a teacher so surely during that you do some kind of self-directed study yep. so it's a decision to just perpetuate this lazy answers either maliciously or lazily um, I mean anyone who knows anything about like the British army will know it's sustained mainly by Gurkhas from like whether that's from like Southeast Asia from the Pacific Islands from the Caribbean like it's this, the, everyone knows that that's that's pretty much one of the first things like that like you, you'll find out if you do any kind of research into it yeah. so i think it's i think that's late i think that's i put that down to laziness of the individual and the fact that she was just couldn't be bothered to prioritize that child's learning at that and, time and then what comes from the back of that which i fear i really do fear is the next day when the child goes home has the conversation with their parents and comes back armed with a response armed with knowledge armed with facts then all of a sudden that child has now been a bit of a nuisance. That child is smarter than the teacher. And then now, that teacher, are they really going to put any kind of emphasis on teaching that child? And that's what I, that's what I really worry about. Yeah, I was actually going to go back to what Dan was saying about how um, it is lazy teaching, but then I don't know really um, how the school system works here in the UK, but I imagine it's vaguely similar. In the US, it's very much everything is standardised. And you can look at that in our curriculum. I mean, it's very obvious that you kind of just get a superficial degree of learning all catered towards passing tests. And I don't know how... And, and hopefully, if you're lucky, you get one of those teachers who will te teach you above and beyond the curriculum. So I don't even think it's necessarily... It is a lazy teacher problem, but it is also the education system itself because there's plenty of room to incorporate black history and not just in history but in sciences in the other subjects um, because there's one thing that I did actually forget we did learn about black faces in art and in the context of music and contra and specifically um, the Harlem Renaissance that happened in the in the 20s and we learned about black figures from that period onward so it was almost like you learn about blackness at the point that slavery ended <laughs> and then afterwards 
it's almost like systemically we're trying to ignore a very negative past, at least in the States, with, with slavery and our idea of blackness. And so this is something that I think is quite interesting. Dan, you said that you felt like um, it was giving the teacher a bit of a, a pass. But actually, I think that there is a systemic issue. I don't want to give too much responsibility to a teacher. And I'll, I'll kind of, I, I think I may have told this um, to you guys privately before, but I remember being at school um, and listening to a history teacher who had decided that they needed to move on to the next topic. And the topic that they were currently teaching um, was about slavery. And in, in front of me just went, oh, I'll just tell them that slavery was bad. And it's that idea that we've got a certain number of things that we need to get through. There isn't really much of an emphasis placed on this. It's a box ticking exercise. And I think there is value if you kind of standardize things that say, because we do that in other subjects, you know, in English, it's like you've got, if you do the dystopian module, you have two core texts that you have to study and then it and then there are kind of other texts that you would build around that and i feel that that same could be done across a number of different subjects and i think it's so important that yes we need to upskill uh, teachers um, and teachers themselves recognize that they need to be upskilled it's important that we recognize that there is a um, a role, for example, to, to standardize things. And also we need to listen to what teachers themselves are saying. The Runnymede Trust uh, had a report out at the start of the year where they looked at um, teaching of for BAME students and staff and the teaching of uh, BAME history and across the arts. And there were a couple of quotes that stood out. One was this one. Most teachers see acts of racism as individual acts of prejudice and they don't understand the structural racism and what it means or the history behind it. They don't know that because they are just not equipped to deal with racism, both with members of staff and with the students as well. Um, and then the second quote, uh, which I thought was really important, it talks about the need for more racial literacy among teachers. And it says, in the context of schooling, racial literacy refers to the capacity of teachers to understand the ways to understand the ways in which race and racisms work in society. It also involves having the language, skills, and confidence to utilize that knowledge in teacher practice. And the reason I'm kind of it's not that I'm giving that individual teacher a pass, I'm kind of trying to be a bit more holistic in the view. How many conversations have we had? this year with friends in the wake of Black Lives Matter, educated friends, friends from back home, friends from all walks of life, where they have generally been, genuinely been walking around just not knowing. How many of them went through the same education that we've just talked about where, you know, it's, I saw Roots and I know Martin Luther King walked across a bridge and John Barnes sang Love's Got the World in Motion. <laughs> Like what if that's if that's what they're getting before they go into education, it's pretty difficult for them to then reach outside of that and outside of their subject and you know learn more. I don't know, that's kind of how I feel. But Nate, you look like you wanted to, to jump in there. Yeah, I think it's to echo something that's been mentioned, all a lot of like I said, the learning about the, the role black people have played in British history has come from self directed learning. So, and obviously that's come from a position of trying to understand myself, you know, my own identity, what it means to be black British, what it means to be a descendant of a, you know, Windrush 
um, kind of immigrant and to hear the story and it's come from a place of necessity fundamentally um, whereas I think for a lot of people if they're not black or they don't have black counterparts in their lives there's no motivation for them to take it on whereas now we've seen that um, you know a lot of friends from school from other places the journeys they've been on the last few months is that they've made visible has been really interesting to see and that they're really committed to learning about it and also deconstructing their own whiteness in my school experience which is really interesting so i agree with everything you just said Nate, and i think it kind of goes deeper than that as well so unfortunately because we learn about the romans because we learn about the tudors because we learn about those kind of things from primary school age i think if you're a white kid born in this country and you go through the british education system you kind of rightly or wrongly have an idea of who you are and where you come from and I think that is the part that really does a disservice to black children because I can only speak to my own example but and I think most people have some kind of I don't know existential crisis when they're in the mid-20s and I was doing a lot of that I was I was having a lot of thoughts of who am I what am I supposed to be doing with my life and the way that I managed to get around that and the way that I start to have a little bit more confidence in who I am as a person was through reading about black people and black history and starting to learn more about where I come from and where my family comes from and whilst that might not make sense to a lot of people that listen to this that's because you've never had to consciously go out and seek that for yourself most likely but when you start to understand these things understand Jamaican history understand West African history it makes a huge difference and then not just in terms of your knowledge but and then you valuing yourself because you know that you come from kings and queens rather than coming from somebody who was whipped and in chains it's hard to speak about without getting too emotional because it's only once you get to the point where you realize you've been starved of it that you realize how much damage it's done to you and then you have to try and play catch up of all of these years of having nothing and then it becomes quite overwhelming because I've been through the position where I've had to stop reading books around race for quite a while because it's like I'm reading so much, I'm learning so much and I feel like I'm developing. But then it's like this is quite overbearing because now I know how shit everything is as well. And I knew it was shit, but at least within these readings, I can also see well there were some real wins in there. There was some real beauty and some real successes as well. And that's where I think we are done a disservice. Yeah, I was going to say and... and... This isn't your fault, Don, but this plays into exactly what you were saying just then um, about sort of a lack of identity and it taking time to find that. And even as an adult, like feeling like it's only in later life that you're really sort of establishing who you are. And I, I had this, I remember when we started this podcast, I wrote the account of when I went to the funeral uh, in Malawi and that was what, 2017, 2016? So what, four or five years ago? And I'm 32 now. And um, and I remember it taking a couple of days. I mean, everyone can read it, it's up there. But it took me a couple of days for me to really sort of reorient myself with being around family and just being at one with, with who I am and who they are. And like, by the end of it, I, I was part of me was gutted to have to come back here because I felt like I'd really sort of found my place there. And the, the sort of, what, what sort of, activated me just then when you were speaking was when you were saying we find out that we're descendants of like kings and queens and things and I think those words almost trigger me now because 
there is this idea I feel which is perpetuated in many sort of forms of the media that this idea of sort of black exceptionalism like that we can only take pride in being like the family or being descendants of kings and queens if British people in this country like will re- will read about someone who used to be a shoemaker 400 500 years ago we'll read about someone who used to be a street cleaner we'll read about Fagin or whatever he was he was you know he was a little little wrong and white people in the UK can be normal and it's great and the world is set up to you know you're really proud of who you are and who your descendants are and we can tell stories and read stories about normal people as a black person unfortunately we don't have that luxury and that's why I think there's now it's now spawned this idea that we have to we can only take pride if if someone in your family was a king or a queen or your descendant of this like mighty tribe of warriors no we're just real people who do real shit from time to time and that's absolutely fine and I think it's only when like you say you go back and do the reading and go back and really find out who you are and who your family are that that you can really sort of own that like my my granddad was a was a teacher like my mum was comes from that like man it was a nurse like ever just just real people just regular ass jobs and that's you know that's all anyone was like there was a rumor that somewhere back along the line is a descendant of the leader of some tribe but i mean if you go back far enough in africa pretty much everyone is you know <laughs> that used to get that used to get the line ringing off when tinder first started up but i i, I moved that off <laughs> but um <laughs> but yeah it's like i i think it's it is hard for us when we don't have that sort of history and that easy access to it to like you say to establish who we are but i think that's one of the things I'm kind of sad about is that it's not easier for us to, you know, just be regular people and, and be happy about being regular people. I'd like to put in some applause and some hooting and hollering in that bit because I think that is really, really important. And I often fall into that trap. And it, I, I remember we've spoken about this before. It was in Queen and Slim. Why do we always have to be exceptional? We should be afforded the luxury of being regular people. Exactly. And like I say, it's, it's, it is one of the great things. I love the fact that we can... We'll, we'll read a pamphlet or a diary that they found because someone was around for 500 years and then you find out the person was just a sweet like a, a street cleaner and that's great because it's a, it's a chronicle of the time that's all that's about it doesn't it's it's it doesn't make the worth of the person any less if, if anything it makes it heightens its importance because they're just a regular person trying to live their life and i think that's why i love my grandma's story so much you know she moved over from jamaica and became a midwife you know, that's a regular ass job, an important job, you know, contributes to society. And, you know, that was, that's how I've always seen my grandma as this amazing midwife who raised a family of pro athletes. It's mad when you actually look into it. Um, but like you say, Dan, I think what I've really enjoyed about reading more about, you know, black people in history is you find out there was regular ass people. You know, there was working class black people for a very long time. And I think that does ground, especially we're all from a, a working class background pretty much. It grounds our own kind of existence in a real in a reality versus, you know, this weird perception as as Dom kinda of said about descendants of this this abhorrent kind of experience. So there's two things I'm gonna say there. One, um and it was a point that again Bethany made today, um that one of the problems is is that we make the arbitrary in education in this country it seems that we make the arbitrary start point of black history slavery and it's there were whole ass civilizations before that with people that had a multitude of jobs that kind of you know 
Tinker Tailor soldiers, you know, candlestick makers, all of that stuff. Um, and I think it's really important to remember that. And what I'm going to do here is just kind of point out that what we're all saying, though, is that the burden of learning about this seems to fall on the individual. And we saw an example in the media of how that can go wrong. We had the uh, incident where Pure Jim had a, a personal trainer who... Uh, in <laughs> in Black History Month, um, wanted to kind of do a film-inspired workout. Wanted to respect Black History Month and combine the two to create a twelve months a slave history workout. I wish you could see everybody's faces on the call right <laughs> now. Twelve um, years of slave. Twelve years of slave. Twelve years of slave. Now it's obviously pure Jim have taken a lot of stick. This guy has taken a lot of stick. My question to you, and maybe I'm going to throw this one to Alana first, is: Can you blame an individual? Because obviously people then found his Instagram. It does look like this guy has been trying to learn about history. Do we blame a person for really trying uh, and perhaps not getting it right? Because and and if we do blame him, how do we then move forward? Because obviously we have to have imperfect allies. So do, first question, Alana, um, do you blame him for this? Uh, and how would you advise that he and uh, his company move forward? Well, this is actually something that I was going to touch on before, so it's a nice segue. Um, I think it's sad that we are not afforded the luxury. And actually, when I say we, I don't even mean people of color. Um, I think everybody is not afforded the luxury of being more educated because I think everyone here on the call is very self-inquiring. We are self-educating. Um, so we are going out there and we savor knowledge and really appreciate knowledge. And so that's how we've gotten to this level of understanding of what our history is. But I don't think most people are self-inquiring. Or I don't think people even know how to be reflective and educate themselves. So I don't think you can necessarily blame someone for making the mistake, but I do think you can hold people accountable for repeating a mistake. And so if this guy is going out there and he's trying to educate himself. He's apologized. He's, you know, having sort of a shift in perspective. Then, I mean, that's exactly the type of thing I think we need to be encouraging. Um, and then as far as how Pure Jim handled the situation, good God, I don't know. I feel for them. I really feel for them because I don't know how you come back from something like that. Um, because what are you going to do? You can't you can't fire the guy, right? I mean, it's it, it's a, a moment to educate. So I don't know. I can't give any advice. Don't take my advice, Pure Jim. But I don't blame that guy. You know, as long as he's trying to do the work to be better, do better. Just do better. <laughs> I'm no, I'm exactly the same. Exactly the same. Because you can make mistakes. What I do is I just look at. What was the mens rea behind it? What what was the thought? Was there any malicious intent there? If it was Rah. a little bit... <laughs> Actus reus thing. Man got an AA level in law. <laughs> forget that. But if there was some kind of malicious intent, then, then obviously we are going to be 
giving that person as much corn as they rightfully deserve. But if someone makes a mistake, which is, to most of us looking at it, something that's really easily avoidable if you just think before you do, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a little bit of corn, basically so you know that you need to wise up, that you know you need to think harder. But then if people are putting in the work, putting in the application to go through and teach themselves why these things are wrong, why they shouldn't think in this way. What really upset me was that it was a black guy that posted it. When I see that it's a black person that's done it, that's when I kind of just want to hold my head in my hands because I'm like, well, there we go. It's happened again because we've been failed that this man thinks that this is acceptable because he doesn't even value himself. He doesn't rate himself highly enough. And that is, again, coming back to what I was talking about previously. You neglect these things, then you've got a whole bunch of people that have no self-respect. Let me be controversial. Um, This is a classic example of... So I put the blame on pure Jim, but not for the reasons that you might think. This is what happens when you start... When you continuously put the expectation on your black labour to kind of come up with solutions, race-based solutions, because do you know what? I can give you a race-based solution because I've put the work into it. You know, just and it's not just because I'm black, because being black, all I can really give you is my personal experience. Having a master's, having looked at Afrofuturism, Afro-pessimism, having gone deep into African literature, African philosophers, African um, uh, psychoanalysts, I can give you that. And this should serve for me as a warning to all companies that would go, oh, Dom, you work for us. Can you knock us something up for Black History Month? Dan, your blackness means that you can probably knock us something up for free as well as doing your own job at the same quality. And by the way, if your main job dips because you're putting work into this, we're going to hold that against you. Ditto Alana, ditto Nate. So whilst I don't blame Pure Jim for what this guy said, the fact that they didn't have anybody on their staff that could have looked at that and gone, Oh, my guy. Um, you sure this 12 years of slave crossover workout things is good? The fact they didn't have anybody that could <laughs> say that, highlight, and should be a warning to all companies. Get people in that know the thing. Because if you don't, you might end up looking like a clown on the whole arse internet. Sorry, just because it reminds me of something that uh, it just triggered a memory for me when I was growing up. I was in high school when Obama was elected for his first term. And I remember the school newspaper asked me what I was going to do to celebrate or as a response or how I felt about it. Same thing, because I was probably one of half a black person in the school. Uh, (laughs) And I remember my response being very like tongue in cheek because I was like, I'm going to go get a box of KFC and eat some watermelon and just be like the blackest ever. And then... (laughs) At the time, you know, I don't know why I actually had that response. I think maybe it's a bit of frustration at having been asked the question. Um, But then I was called into the administrative office to to basically explain why I had um, responded in such a stereotypical way. So to explain my comment to my white, like, administrators, um when that question shouldn't have been posed to a 16 year old in the first place as the only black face amongst a sea of white people. Um, so yeah, just, just to your point, Angelo, I, 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 I blame the administration just as much as I blame the individual, but for different reasons. 
there's there's another group to blame here. And that's the guy's friends, man. Like, surely he'd run this idea past someone. Like, you know, his group chat or something. Like, if I ever come with an idea like this, I know for facts it's not going anywhere near the internet. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's another thing I've got to blame the guy for. Yeah? Do you not understand the internet? Like, it can get around. Like, rapid. And his whole, you know, world changed so quick. Um, so, yeah, I think... The, the the way Pierre Jim works, I've got a few friends that work for, for them. They're independent, right? They're personal trainers, contracted, and they kind of take on the social media to promote, you know, they get access to the page and do whatever. Um, so I think, yeah, the guy needs better friends around him. Um, and number two, I think it's just around, like I said, that kind of digital literacy, man. People don't realise the stuff you can put out there is immortalised. And, you know, I think it's it's good to see the guys trying to learn and I think, you know, going back to Alana's original point, we can't play a blame game forever, right? People are going to make mistakes and it's really important that we use it as something Dan said earlier, as a learning point, as a chance to educate um, and see it as that. Obviously, throw some corn because we love to see it, but yeah. If it's black stuff, you know that someone's going to get corned. You know someone's getting shelled, whether it's good or bad. Yeah, I was going to like... Just, I've got two brief points to make on this. Yeah, one like Nate says, I think it's a franchisee thing anyway. So, I'm I'm good. I'm going to be loath to get after Pure Gym themselves. If anything, I think in this situation, the last thing they need to do is to like just boot the guy out on his ass and just like let just hang him out to dry because I just don't think that's a particularly productive thing. But the the other point I was going to make on this was I was in a situation like this recently. So yesterday we all I. We all posted in the group, I think, the video of Paul Dempsey on BT Sport on the boxing trying to make the link. <laughs> and Paul Dempsey says, he's talking, he sat there with David Hay and he says, Before we get to talk about our main fight here, David, I think it is perhaps appropriate tonight that we just pause to mark Black History Month, most of all. And we, we discussed it today and we thought it was actually right that we acknowledge that properly and there's nobody better placed on our team to do that than Steve Bunce. So over to you for a moment, Steve. Steve Bunce. <laughs> and, he just like, and he just passes. And so everyone, obviously, everyone was like, oh my goodness. And the, the internet's on fire. But when you, when you sort of sit back and think about it, and I was, I was arguing with this guy all day on Twitter, and I, I, I was thinking, in the end, I was like, send this guy, you're quite lucky. Because like two or three years ago, I'd have just, I'd have just, I'd have just ended him. I'd have just flamed his whole life. But the point was, it was obvious. It was just a clumsy link by a guy who's on TV. It was just a clumsy link. He was trying to set up this video and he didn't really think it through, the words that he was actually saying in the, in the context of it. But unfortunately, the context of the situation at the minute means you've always got to think about what you're doing. So any kind of tiny error is going to be magnified. And this guy, and I'll, if, if you look at the people queuing up to defend the like the errors, like, oh, you're saying only black people can talk about black people. Do, uh, Steve Bunce knows loads about boxing. And I'm saying to this guy, that's not the point. It's absolutely irrespective of Steve Bunce's knowledge. The fact is, when you're talking about Black History Month, a black person has got lived experience. So they are always going to be better placed to talk about it than a white person. It doesn't matter how long the white person studied black people for. It doesn't matter. Like a black person's always gonna be a better place because of lived experience, and this there's back and forth and back and forth until like this guy eventually sort of realised he couldn't spin the words 
any longer and he realized that it wasn't it's not a critique of paul dempsey paul dempsey's made a mistake it's not a critique of steve brunts steve brunts is great talking about boxing he's very entertaining it was just how ridiculous that situation was with david hay sat there for that man to say that at that time and it's just like uh, this is exactly the type of it's symptom it's emblematic of a sort of a scene we see played out time and time and time again you know like it's what language is very absolutely Uh, and Angela, you always say whenever you if you've been on the radio a few times to talk on um, our friend Kofi's show, and you say the one thing we are um, that is not up for grabs in this conversation is my lived experience, and so it's, it's, and that's that is crucial. So I think that is that is why uh, so many black people were sort of I don't want to say triggered, but were, were sort of inflamed by that situation. With oh god, here it goes again. I was just going to say, ultimately, it's yeah, in that situation. I feel like the discourse wasn't as harsh as it could have been. I think there's a bit more of a sort of acceptance that it's just a mistake and it's more important that people sort of learn why it would have been wrong if he meant that to actually say that, like, in this situation. I think the reason that I am less inclined to give it a pass is because I have gone on my own personal journey in the last few years of being in spaces that are uncomfortable for a person like me to be in, or and I say uncomfortable in inverted commas. So when I was at uni, I made sure that I paid subs for societies that I wouldn't necessarily uh, be going to every meeting, but I thought it was important to kind of support them. So um, the LGBTQ society, I made sure that I paid my subs for that. There was a women in business society. You know, I'm going to pay my subs, but do you know what? It's probably not the space for me to be in. And if I'm going to be in there, I'm going to be sitting at the back and listening and learning. Um, I'm part of a uh, a feminist studies group online and I pay my yearly subs and I listen. I don't say too much because actually I'm there to learn. I'm there to support the thing. And I I have never in... So I've, I've been in feminist groups where they will have, you know, men ain't shit kind of day where it's just like they've found out that a colleague... A male colleague earns more and they do the same job or their boss has been just misogynistic and they come out with a statement that men ain't shit. I've never once felt like I need to go, well, actually, I'm a man and I'd like to say that I'm not shit, so therefore all men ain't shit. You know, I don't feel the need to say that. I understand there's a context of why they're saying it. Also, and we this actually came up in my feminist studies group where they um, were looking for people to host events and one of them, and I was asked, would you be willing to host an event? And I said, no, I don't I don't think that's right. I don't think that I should have a front-facing role. Let me pay my subs and sit in the back. And it would be crazy with all of these PhD educated women, and women that have got lived experiences on top of it, to listen to anything that I've got to say. I'm there to listen to them. And I know that it's, I've gone on that personal journey, and not everybody's gone on that personal journey, but I don't feel a way if I hear a woman say something kind of that is targeted at an aspect of my identity because it's like no actually I recognize that I benefit from being a man in ways that I don't have to think about like I'd have like Nate let's go let's let's uh, meet at the pub and we'll walk there at 10 past 8 at night I'm never gonna think about oh but it's dark I don't it's just something I don't need to think about and so because I can understand that on that level I kind of go, do you know what? I get what Dempsey's doing, but just it just shows the ways that privilege can walk around completely blind. Because you're literally sitting next to a 
person of colour, black person, BAME person, whatever the ITV, uh, BT Sport have used as their diversity line, you're sitting next to one of them and you're saying, we didn't think there was anybody better placed than another white guy. And so it's just like, that just shows me how people in privilege can walk around in complete blindness. And then people with privilege with social media as well, so they've managed to get to a place where they think that their opinion actually always counts when 99 times out of 100 it doesn't count for shit. And the way I kind of look at it is clumsy ignorance, right? He was professionally, he made a mistake and he was ignorant to the to the impact of the words he kind of said. Um, shout out Twitter, it quickly reminds everyone of that. And I think, you know, it's another another point off the back of it. I hope, you know, like there has been this conversation, like Dan said, about why this was not a good thing to say and a sensible thing and why we need to be better our institutions need to be better. Um, I think for me, I just hate the fact it's framed around like Black History Month. Like, oh, it's this month, so we need to honour it. Can we not honour it 12 months a year? Do we not have brilliant black boxers all year round making history? You know, so I think there's, like I said, it's that clumsy ignorance where people almost don't know the impact of the words they're saying because of that privilege, because of their own lived experience. Um, and it's fundamental that we give those people with the voices and the lived experience an opportunity um, to speak on it. I'll just sort of close that little bit up just by saying, David, hey, it's time to unblock me on Twitter. <laughs> it was a long time ago. We've all grown. And you couldn't back it with Klitschko because you said you had a bad tone. And if you don't want to take that banter, don't say stupid stuff like that after the fight. Don't wear a T-shirt with severed heads. And then back out a big toe and you've been boxed around <laughs> for 12 rounds. Okay? <laughs> corn master. How did man ask for an unblocking and corn him? <laughs> <laughs> That's all he wants it to get unblocked for. So he can give him some more shit. That's it. <laughs> um, David, I respect you. I think you are the greatest cruiserweight of my lifetime. And that's that. Right, so moving on, the next topic, we're looking at alternative education. As we've said, we've all had to kind of go on our own journey. And one of the things that helps in 2020 is social media. So the question is, how is social media enabling black people, black students to access different stories? Alana, I wanted to open with you because you were doing something very interesting with your Instagram earlier this year. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, so basically early into lockdown and shortly after the murder of George Floyd, which really, really significantly impacted me, um, I mean, as it did to many other people, but this one hit really hard for me. Um, I It just dawned on me that I was missing a big part of my education in terms of, you know, what systems were set against me uh, as a as a person of color, as a black person, as a black woman. And I just really wanted to educate myself around the the joys of blackness, but also the contributions of black people throughout history, throughout the diaspora. Um, and all of this was motivated by my fire and my renewed drive to fight for racial equity. So. What I did was, I actually can't take credit for this. This was actually something that I found online. I feel like 
I can't remember who who actually started this initiative, but basically if you Google it, it was a 21-day racial equity challenge. And it just gave a list of resources of, um, you know, things to educate yourself as a black person or as an ally or just somebody who wanted to get more education around, again, the contributions of black people, black history, um, the holistic nature of what it is to be black and what it is to be black and just human. And so every day you do something to educate yourself and you do something to take action. And so I started a group, uh, just a WhatsApp group with my personal friends um, and said, who wants to do this challenge? Every day we'll hold each other accountable. We'll say day one, I read this article or day two, I signed this petition or day three, I shared this thing. And so we were constantly not only educating ourselves, but bringing people into this um, circle of growth and sharing and posting every day on social media. And I didn't know how much would come of it, to be honest. Um, I felt a bit wary and maybe disillusioned as some of the as some of you guys um, had also expressed uh, shortly after you know George Floyd's murder and you know the sort of resurgence of people trying to be allies. So I think we were all a little bit kind of wary and, and, and dubious. But I actually found that the momentum that was built off of the back of that racial equity, equity challenge and sharing our education and being vulnerable through social media as well to say, hey, I'm black and I'm, I'm super ignorant. <laughs> like, I'm ignorant about this stuff too. And it's okay. And I'm trying to learn. And I know that you guys, you know, all my white friends probably don't know much about this either. And that's okay. And we're in this together. And we're just trying to better ourselves. And I found that the response was so positive, And a lot of people joined, you know, later in the challenge. And it seems like the momentum has continued. I mean, people have fallen off from that and aren't posting as much as they were, but I still see the conversation going. So I think it was a, a hugely positive thing. And I, I don't know what that means about what that means about the power of social media to educate, but it's definitely a tool that I think needs to be used more in our own self-education. Agreed, agreed. What I would say, though, is that social media is just another tool for the people that want to learn, unfortunately, because there's so much yeah. good that social media can do and it can be utilised for. But Barry Down, the working men who hates blacks and illegal immigrants, isn't going to use social media to <laughs> to actually educate himself. So I think it is great and it can be harnessed for good, but the kind of people that are using it to better themselves probably would go and go to a library go online and search for this kind of thing themselves i think yes i, I kind of get wrapped up in it as well because it does become quite all-consuming social media with the amount of time that we all spend on it but it's just i always err on the side of caution because it's one thing to be educating yourself but then the sources i'm, I'm always quite suspicious of the sources and i tend to find myself reading more about people's experiences rather than getting 
involved in too much around history that's been published by somebody that I don't know. I don't know what their credentials are. I don't know what experience they have in research, what experience they have in the topic. I listen to your experience, how you feel about certain things that you've been through in your life, how it's impacted you. But beyond that, I personally, and this is just me, I'm a little bit reluctant to to rely on social media for that kind of thing. Dom, do you reckon that it can have a role though in moving the Overton window? So if if it reaches a critical mass of people that are on it and you get things like the black square, it can at least open up a dialogue in in do you think it can it has a value in that at least? One hundred percent. One hundred percent. I know what I just said sounded quite negative, but that's just me being a little bit cautious. And I'm typically not a cynical person, and I'm typically not a negative person. I think that the good that it has done and it is doing this year, it's been immeasurable. I mean, like I look at some of the conversations that I've been involved in, some group chats that I'm in, where there's conversations taking place that I would have never thought possible a couple of years ago, and social media has been a huge driver in this. I'm just always like, right, okay, I want to see the bibliography. I want to know who's done what. I want to know who's done what research and make sure that it's it's got some real scientific grounding to it. That's my only piece. But I think in terms of actually harnessing social media to start these dialogues, 100% it's an amazing tool. And Mate? I think I think there's a few... Um, whenever I talk about social media, I like to frame it because I think it is a useful tool. But I think we need to understand that with social media, it's a constant war for attention. So meaningful education is not going to happen by this means. It's going to trigger, signpost, raise awareness and direct. It's not going to convince. It's not going to, you know, get, as you say, our buzz down the working men's club to start reading about, you know, black black contributions to history. But I think it's it, it builds... It's a tool to build momentum, right? And what we saw this year was the world stopped for three months and all we could do was stare at it and we didn't have a choice. Whereas, are we going to have that chance next year and the year after? Hopefully not. You know, hopefully some familiarity will return. But I think I'm always cautious of when we talk about educating people via social media because I just don't see it as a suitable tool to do that. I think it's to inspire, to trigger, to direct but inevitably education is as kind of pointed out it's down to oneself and down to the choices we make are we wanting are we willing to learn are we willing to be uncomfortable but the thing is right we're talking from the perspective of and as adults now and adults engaging in social media kids are plugged into the matrix from about the age of four now so I think that there is definitely something to be said for ways that you could improve education on these kind of things for younger people I think unfortunately and whilst there is definitely still a lot of scope for improvement and self-development and reflection once you are an adult unfortunately a lot of minds are already made up and there's not much that they're going to see on social media that's going to change that way of thinking certain things can influence it certain things can change it a little bit i fear that once you are an adult things are much more set in stone but i think in terms of children i see some of the content i think john amici put out explaining what white privilege is We've been engaged in a global conversation about race and racism. You've probably had discussions at home, at school or at work, and in those conversations you've probably heard the term white privilege. You may have even had this term used in a way that felt like an insult or an accusation. Others will have told you that it's all just made up to make white people feel bad and none of this is right. Privilege is a hard concept for people to understand because normally when we talk of privilege we imagine immediate 
unearned riches and tangible benefits for anyone who has it. But white privilege, and indeed all privilege, is actually more about the absence of inconvenience, the absence of an impediment or challenge. And as such, when you have it, you really don't notice it. But when it's absent, it affects everything you do. There are lots of types of privilege out there. The privilege of being born into a wealthy family versus a poor family is kind of obvious. But then there's the privilege of being able-bodied versus having or acquiring a disability that most of us take for granted. I have two very close friends who are wheelchair users. And I'll be honest, when I first met them, I was completely ignorant about the everyday ways their lives are made harder through no fault of their own. Some of these ways are simply thoughtless, but some of them are just the way we live, just the way we build infrastructure, just the way everything works that just makes their life harder than mine. That's just one of the ways that I'm privileged. And understanding that, embracing that, doesn't make me a bad person. But ignoring it raises the chance that my friends will be excluded in ways that are not obvious to me. And as their friend, I can't allow that. There's a good chance as a white person watching this, your life is already hard. Every day you have to overcome some difficulty or challenge just to get by, but you can still have white privilege. White privilege doesn't mean you haven't worked hard or you don't deserve the success you've had. It doesn't mean that your life isn't hard or that you've never suffered. It simply means that your skin color has not been the cause of your hardship or suffering. There is nothing but a benefit to understanding our own privileges, white and otherwise. It brings us closer to those who are different. It helps us be vigilant about the ways we treat others different than us. It helps us make a society that is fairer and more equal. Having white privilege doesn't make your life easy, but understanding it can help you realize why some people's lives are harder than they should be. The audience is kids. <laughs> yeah, it is probably the best dissection of white privilege that I've seen in any forum. So I think when you have that kind of content within social media, it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. I just... I need to put more emphasis on the recipient rather than the actual media itself, the form of media itself. I guess, now, I, you know, I make my living in social media, so first of all, hold tight, everyone that's been staring at social media for the last three months, keeping my lights on. But, um, yeah, I mean, social media, it's just, it's just access, and it's ultimately, it's just giving people more access to information which, you know, would have, you know, they could find it before, but it would have been hard to find before. So all it is is social media now signposts it. It allows you to bookmark it. It allows you to collect it on your stories. It allows you to, to gather your own resources. It allows you to be part of groups who have gathered resources for you. So it's just access. And then the the education part, I'm I'm kind of with Dom here. It's, it's, it's self-directed and that's you know that's on the individual as we say we saw all these people in the immediate aftermath of george floyd's killing wanting to talk about what things were really like for black people wanting to talk about their own privilege wanting to ask questions and then so that kind of subsided but what social media did allow is it allowed those conversations to happen quickly and it allowed them to happen where they needed to happen um I don't necessarily, I wouldn't necessarily say social media itself is, is you know, is is for educating. Unfortunately, the the brevity of it and how it rewards uh, quick sound bites, it rewards things which are going to be immediately emotive and reactive as opposed to things which need to be thought about and considered and digested and then responded to. It's, I feel like it's, that, that then makes it, 
uh, almost not a dangerous platform, but not not the right place for those conversations to happen in the first place. But yeah, I mean, it's increased access, and for that reason, I think it's it's a good thing. And that's the reason that I wanted to bring it up because it feels like now that there's less excuse for having l- like no even frame of reference for a thing. That's the thing for me is that you know even if the source is Talcum X, you know there is still an ability to kind of hear about a thing that's happening and that's kind of why I wanted to talk about this because I kind of um I've kind of heard names of sorry I've heard names of uh people that I wouldn't have heard of through TikTok where people are kind of like have you heard about this let me give you a 60 second introduction and then me being who I am I'm like well let me go and learn a bit more um you know so and I think that there is no such thing as the, the, the kind of golden, this is the thing that we need. It's just access. Because I remember growing up and it'd be like, if there isn't a book in the library that has some information on this, I haven't got it. You know? And then back in them days of the dial-up internet, it's like, I hope this is on the one website that kind of will load in the half an hour that I've got on the computer before my mum takes me off. Otherwise, I ain't got it. Until you know, your auntie so, calls your mum and all, all, the whole internet's locked off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, them days. Um, so I think that there is, that for me is the value is like young people can go out and with a quick TikTok search, find something at least to have a start point. Not And in, in the same way that I would say to my students, you know, don't use Wikipedia as your single source because you'll come up a wrong one, but it can at least provide you a start point to find better things. You know, and that and that for me is also trying to give an out to teachers who kind of feel like they're completely lost in this source of kind of where do I go when it comes to race? You know, I'm an art teacher. My guy, type in the Harlem Renaissance, as, as Alana mentioned earlier. Some of the best art I've ever seen coming out of America comes out of that period. Um, and I think there is such value in kind of not throwing out the baby with the bathwater and kind of an understanding and getting on the same page as, as your students. Um, and I think when you do that, you're in a position where you can actually make a real, real difference. Because, yeah, as you know, we were joking six months ago, Nate, that, you know, TikTok ain't for us. TikTok is not for us. But at the same time, because obviously I'm on social media, I do spend some time on there. Like the, those algorithms are mad, and like they are so attuned to what you are kind of looking for. So, like my TikTok gives me recipes, it gives me musicals, like it, it gives me the things that I'm looking for. So I know that if I put a couple of searches in looking for historical figures, historical black figures in the world of classical music, TikTok will kind of direct me in that direction real quick, real quick. So. Yeah, I just wanted to put that in just a little quick one just to kind of highlight that like teachers, educators, parents, you don't have any excuses now. You can't just be like, I don't know because we've got a big old internet and you can find anything that you want with a quick search. Sterling, you look like you wanted to jump in Yeah, just I think it comes back to another point around digital literacy. Again, you know, people don't really understand the tools that are at their disposal. Um... I grew up initially, 
you know, I went to the library. I was allowed into the adult section if I did all my homework first, right? I was I was allowed in, you know, to go there and do that. And then, as you say, dial-up came along, negotiating in the 45-minute window. And now we're synon- our world and our lives are synonymous with a digital layer. Um, and I think schools don't do a good job of teaching digital skills because they're not set up to, right? The whole curriculum and education system is set up based on enlightenment industrial revolution we need people that do the same stuff again and again so i think we need to mature our thinking around what social media can do kind of like you know we i was throwing corn at you for being on tiktok but you know that's it's important it's a way in it's another way in and i think that's the way we need to look at social media um i guess the main thing is the kind of algorithm and the, the way they work like obviously i work in tech and the hardest thing is breaking your own bubble right so for people like ourselves who naturally engage in this conversation we're going to see more of it but if we go back to our barry in the working men's club how are we going to get into his social media bubble how does that work that's something that i'm i'm fascinated we won't mate we won't get into barry's we won't get into barry's bubble that's fine i mean there's different ways that you've got to reach people in different ways where they are and that's you know that's unfortunate that's just the way it goes so and it's it's like you're saying it's it's i think other platforms will emerge like TikTok, it's just a scroll. It's it rewards you for finding new content. So that's already broken up the the sort of forming of bubbles in the same way where you have like Twitter. You've got feed curated by yourself, and then you see the the kind of people that people that you like talk to. So your bubble, it just it it forms these these bubbles. Whereas TikTok, which is the which is the youngest one, is is sort of done away with that completely. So I think it's technology will will create its own kind of solution to that. Well, guys, that's been a really interesting uh, discussion. I hope that you guys listen to this as a kind of accompaniment to what we've got. We've got uh, Bethany, Shabazz, and Savannah are going to be talking about different aspects of education. That's going to be coming out shortly after this. But I just want to thank. All the black guys in a box. Alana. Thank you. <laughs> Anytime. Mr. DC Dan Sherwa. Mate, it's good. It's been good being on the other side of the fence today. You've, you've done a sterling job, bro. Man like Nate Sterling. Yeah, it's been good. Always enjoy talking to you lot. An international man of mystery, Tom Harriet Donson. Jared Dudley's got a ring. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, we out.